Canto 30 of The Paradise, sees Dante enter the Imperium at long last. We're nearing the end of this journey with all its developments and turns and discoveries and expansions that whilst they have seemed various and hard to understand at various points, have all been directed towards this end which is that he can share in this experience of the origin of all things of God, of that light, of that life, unmediated. And to describe this last transition, Dante begins the canto with another one of his tremendous astronomical metaphors that take a little bit of teasing out. But what it does, I think, is collapse space and time in order to show that this is what the Imperium itself does because it's beyond space and time. It sets us up imaginatively to try to see whether we can keep following him in our little barks even as he sails into this last domain. The image that he uses is of the dawn on earth and he describes it by saying how there's a point where the light is 6,000 miles away from the zenith, which is the point that the sun reaches at the noon. And you wonder at first what this is all about. But then you realise that the circumference of the earth can be measured in miles. And so a distance of miles can be used as a clock. And from the zenith, if you wind it back, 6,000 miles means that the sun is about an hour below the horizon before sunrise. Aurora has yet to really start to bring her golden fingertips into the night sky. But the light is just beginning to be seen. It's the blue hour before dawn. And this gives Dante a metaphor for what it was like as entering the Imperium, the heavenly triumph, all those angels, those dazzling lights. He sees now are a bit like the stars in this hour before dawn that begin to disappear as the night sky becomes the dawn sky as this much greater light, as yet unseen because it's below the horizon, starts to outshine the stars one by one. So Dante's experience now is of the angels that are reflecting the divine light start to be outshone one by one as the source and origin of all light starts to be seen. He says it continues until the fairest of all the stars pointing to Venus on Earth, the last of the stars to disappear in the dawn sky. So too, the fairest of all the angels disappeared into the background glow. And as that glow increased in intensity, Dante says that he was forced once more to look to Beatrice's eyes, to hold him steady and to enable him to become capable of this last great transformation of his sight. Beatrice, whose eyes time and time again 
have reflected the divine light in a measure that's just beyond his capability, but in a measure that enables his capability to grow and grasp the light that Beatrice sees and is reflecting, titrating towards him. It's very fascinating in this last moment to think of what's happening to Dante's eyes. Um, several things, I think. Um, one is that much as light on earth, when it grows in intensity, enables us to see further, so spiritually the growing light of the heavens and then finally here in the Imperium, its deepening intensity enables Dante to see further spiritually, to see more and more of the divine reality. I think also we need to understand that sight in the medieval mind, and actually I think it's still quite plausible now, is not just a physical process, but it's a physical and spiritual process where the light entering on our eyes needs to be interpreted imaginatively as much as focused literally, which the medievals of Dante's time knew about too. And so what Beatrice is enabling him to do is have the space where his imaginative sight can see and understand the deepening spiritual light that's growing around him and so become capable of focusing it, of cognizing it, of understanding it, um, even as his will and desire and love longs to do so. So this combination of deepening of sight and expansion of imagination explains, I think, what's been happening to Dante's eyes literally as he's been rising through the paradise. Because, of course, a third element is that for the medieval mind, matter, the stuff of which our bodies are made, as we heard in the previous canto, is a form of potentiality. And matter can become more and more and more itself actualizing the spiritual reality that it's a reflection of. So we can see that Dante's transhumanization, as he put it all those cantos ago at the beginning of the paradise as he rose from the Garden of Eden on the top of Mount Purgatory, he transhumanized and I think that that is signaling a distinctive moment in how his physical body, which has been so present throughout the purgatory and the paradise. Um, in the purgatory, the souls were amazed at his physical body, partially blocking out the sun and so casting a shadow. In the paradise, there's been this extraordinary thing that Dante, the mortal, has been able to rise into paradise, as seems to be very rare. Remember, St Paul had said, that he wasn't sure whether his body rose into the high heavens when he had his vision. Um, some of the saints like St Benedict have said that they're awaiting for their bodies to complement their spiritual light in the paradise, which will represent the culmination and perfection of their entry into the heavens. Well, Dante's got a foretaste of this. He's not the only one, but it seems quite a rare thing. And I think what this is a foretaste of is how the physical body is itself changed, as St Paul put it, in a twinkling of an eye. It's not a replacement, but is understood as a fulfilment, even as the fulfilment of the material world is seen in its spiritual destiny. Nothing is lost, you might say, but everything 
is transformed. I think that's how to understand the resurrection, why Jesus' resurrected body in the Gospels is seen to somehow occupy this in-between space, sometimes seen as a physical body, sometimes seen more directly as if it's a spiritual body able to pass through walls. So Dante now, as his eyes turn back to Beatrice's eyes, is really quite audaciously intimating that his body itself undergoes a final transformation so that with his imagination, with his desire and longing, with his capacity to see further into the depth of reality, he is being made ready to enter the Imperium. And then something else happens that's very striking at the beginning of Canto 30, because he says that in turning to Beatrice, his words finally failed him to describe her beauty. He says that if all the efforts he'd made through his life to that point, ever since he first clasped eyes on Beatrice walking through the streets of Florence as a youth, if all those efforts were put together into one great poem, they wouldn't be able to capture the beauty that he sees now. He says it's up to other poets now to see whether they can speak of beauty more finely than he has done. He must leave that arduous labour behind. And it's a very fascinating reflection because on the one hand he's pointing to the ineffability of the divine beauty when seen face to face in the Imperium. Um, that is familiar to anyone who has tried to find words to describe beautiful things. Ultimately words can only be pointers, they can sort of nudge us in the right direction, but the beauty itself is the beauty itself, and words can only channel that, as words are a mean of, means of channel or communication. But there's something going on for Dante, I think, because imagine what it's like for him at this point to have to give up this long task, this life's effort, really, to, at one level, capture Beatrice's beauty to him, which has been, of course, the journey, the thing that's impelled him and enabled him to rise through the heavens too. Well, at this almost finishing point, he must stop that. He must give it up. It's, I think, a moment of sacrifice. You know, he's got to turn definitively and finally let go of Beatrice in order to reach this final point. Um, it's another moment of sacrifice. You know, you can almost feel, he might have said, but maybe just one more effort, one more try to capture, in my own words, this immediate experience that I've had throughout my life. No, he must let that go. Ultimately, everything must be let go of in order that everything can be received. You can almost feel as he takes several tercets to explain how he must let Beatrice go, that this is an exquisite moment of agony letting go in order that a new ecstasy, a new perception might become possible. And Beatrice recognises that. She knows what's going on in his mind. And as he comes to the end of saying he lets her go, she says, we've now entered the Imperium, and describes in a beautiful set of lines what that was like. Um, many commentators spot that the words light and love and ecstasy are used by Dante 
intertwining, interfolding across the lines, um, showing a Trinitarian formula, but also showing how this is a gathering together of all that the poem has been about to this point. Let me just read um, one of the tercets as Mark Muser translates it. Beatrice says to Dante, and we've gone beyond from greatest sphere to heaven of pure light to the Imperium. Light of the intellect, light full of love. Love of the true good, full of ecstasy. Ecstasy that transcends the sweetest joy. So we have this pulse from light to love to ecstasy. And it's a Trinitarian pulse because the divine is the source of light in one of its aspects. It's the sort of love in another of its aspects, that dynamism that draws, that knows, that longs. And then this produces the third aspect of ecstasy, the experience of light and love coming together. It's the being, consciousness and bliss, the Satchit Ananda in the Sanskrit words, this Trinitarian perception of reality that, whilst explicit in Christianity, is there in many other mystical traditions as well. And Beatrice says, you will now see the angels and the saints united in the one as we enter into this new domain. And then there's a, another thing that happens, that Dante experiences a light coming to him. It's a glorious living light. And he says that it enveloped him. And in an instant, he realised that whatever brightness he would now be confronted with, he would be able to see it. And a voice tells him that this is the light that greets all souls who enter into this domain. This is God coming unmediated towards Dante. It's what is possible now that Dante has both been able, but also has voluntarily given up all his aids, all his guides, um, Beatrice herself. Um, it's just the right moment for that to happen. It couldn't happen before. He needed these things to get to this point. But he also knows at this point to give them up in order that he may receive the divine living light in its fullness. And it launches him into a series of visions that fill the rest of the canto. I think these visions are Dante trying to capture for us the experience of knowing and seeing and enjoying this divine light unmediated. It's his way of trying to capture the direct knowledge of it. These aren't symbols, if you like. These aren't images that are trying to transmit something. Rather, they're images that he is using to convey to us the direct sense of what was happening now in the Imperium. And the first vision he has is of a stream of light, like a river, and it has dazzling lights coming off it, rising onto the banks, and around the banks are ruby-like flowers that too are ablaze. Um, it's an image of flow and dynamism, but it has this directional quality. Um, it's a river, and Beatrice tells him that he must drink 
of this river because whilst it's gorgeous and amazing, it's an imperfect reflection of the divine light. Imperfect not in itself anymore now, but imperfect because Dante is transitioning in order to be able to fully see with this direct sight. Um, so he must drink it in, in order to take in the divine light so that it intermingles literally with his spiritual, physical body um, in order to fill him so that he can become completely porous to it, can become even one with it. So he leans down, his desire takes him down. He says it was like a child reaching out to its mother, having woken late in the day and longing for a feed. Um, it's a very beautiful image, um, captures something of the, the, the desire to reach out for it, but also, of course, this direction of travel, which is the mother feeds the baby and the baby must receive it. And so Dante is in this final section of reception of the divine light too. And as he drinks it in, um, he sees that this stream changes and it changes from this linear directionality as if a river um, into a great lake, a circle. Um, and that is the step towards seeing more perfectly what is present around him. Um, the circle is the image of perfection, whereas the river um, still carries echoes of flowing, say, through time. Um, in this collapse of space and time in the Imperium, there is no direction. Everything is immediately, simultaneously, coextensively present. And that is what he has nudged that little bit more towards being able to see directly, which he captures in a metaphor for those of us reading of his vision from these earthly domains. He says it was a bit like the moment in a masked ball where everyone takes off their masks and is revealed as their true selves. So now in the Imperium, with his eyes embedded, as he puts it, he sees that the lights that have been moving all around him are the angels and saints who are here in paradise. The souls he sees directly, he doesn't just see them now as lights as he had been throughout the paradise. He sees them as individuals. The angels he doesn't just see as sparks or as lights as he had often in the paradise. He sees them too as individuals as well. All these individuals fully formed, fully together, fully enjoying the divine light. He celebrates this in a series of tercets where the phrase, I saw, I saw, I saw, is um, used several times. And then he says that there's a heavenly light which shines down and enables all these souls and angels to see the divine light, even as it shines upon them. And there's another metaphor he uses to describe this. He says, it's a bit like when you see a mountain and meadows full of flowers reflected in the stillness of a lake. It's like you see a perfect image of the mountain and the meadows and the flowers on the water's perfect surface. And if you see such a sight and look at the mountain and its reflection with your imaginative eyes, as well as the physical eyes, 
you'll see that it's almost as if the mountain and reflection are one. They're mutually enjoying each other. Is the image on the surface of the lake enjoying the mountain, or is the mountain enjoying the image on the surface of the lake? No, there's a mutual exchange between the two, which I think is why these images are so captivating, because it amplifies reality. It is as if we see more than we might have seen otherwise. So Dante says that the souls and the angels now are in relation to the divine light in the same way. And this is picking up of what he'd said from uh, in Canto 29, that the creation of the angels and souls and all of nature didn't increase God's goodness. What it did was it, in a way, broadcast it all the more loudly, um, which is why the temporal world and the internal world are intertwined. Um, he's seeing and knowing that directly for himself. But the image of the mountain doesn't stop there. It shifts that little bit more in Dante's verse. And he says that now it was a bit like seeing a great amphitheatre um, with tiers of the um, seats like the myriad saints and souls looking down towards um, the light that is the light that enables them to see all things. Um, we've got a kind of inversion going on here, um, but it's not really an inversion because space and time now are collapsed and disappeared and so things can shift in ways that don't serve any physical necessity but just serve to try to communicate to us this direct spiritual sight. And then the amplifier itself changes because Dante says it became a rose. Petals started to appear to him. With the closest circle of petals in this celestial rose, seeming more expansive than the sun's light when it fills the whole heavens. And yet at the same time, Dante says, he could see every detail of this celestial rose, every petal, every soul, every angel on it, because as there's no time in eternity, so also there's no distance. And so things can be encountered immediately, a bit like we can bring thoughts to mind you can bring to mind a place that is quite distant when you remember what it was like to be there. Suddenly it's proximate to you. Well, that mental experience is a faint echo of the celestial experience that Dante knows now. He can see everything distinctly, but with no difference. To remember Coleridge's differentiation, he said, that in order to have spiritual vision, to have imaginative capabilities, we must be able to know that things can be distinctive, but also not be different. Um, it's to point to the quality of things, rather than seeing things in quantitative terms, which of course belongs to the realm of time and space. The canto ends with something that is very remarkable, and in a way seems out of place, given all this vision, all this unfolding, this entering into the divine light. Because Beatrice speaks again, and this is the last time she speaks in the divine comedy. Dante has already turned from her to share with her in this divine sight, and she imparts a final set of thoughts to him. When she points out that Whilst many of the seats in this celestial rose are full, 
and only a few are left unfilled. Um, incidentally, I don't think that kind of number counting the number of souls that are going to enter heaven. Remember, we're in a qualitative space here. Um, this is, if you like, saying that many of the seats um, of heaven have been filled with all sorts of people rather than with numbers of people. Um, so it will become clear um, as the Divine Comedy draws to a close that those who lived before the Christian period are here. Those who live during the Christian period, you might say, are filling up the seats. And I think that even those who live in the Christianity beyond Christianity are signalled by the seats that have yet to be filled. Um, but, Dan but Beatrice points to one seat in particular. Um, and she says that seat um, is for Henry VII, um, the Henry who was going to become emperor. And in Dante's hope was going to be an emperor that might bring an end to um, the Italian civil wars. Um, what's really interesting is that he, in the first instance, seems to be offered a place in heaven because he brings an end to these terrible civil wars. Um, and you think, why wouldn't Dante, well, want to put Henry in this high heaven, even see Henry in this high heaven because of his bitter loathing and the pain um, he'd suffered because of the civil wars and being expelled from Florence. But what is striking in the second moment is that you realise that, as the commentators point out, in life, Henry actually failed to do this. He did become the emperor, but um, died too soon, or maybe could never have uh, achieved the settlement um, of the wars. And so I think what Beatrice is saying, even in this last moment, is that it's not what Henry managed to achieve on earth, which ultimately always comes to a kind of failure. Um, what matters is how what we achieve on earth enables us to become capable of the divine vision. Um, you know, we shouldn't look for utopias on earth. We should look for earth being the time to prepare us for life in the heavens. Um, to use Blake's image, um, Golganuza, the attempt to build Jerusalem on earth, actually passes away before entering through heaven's gate that's built in Jerusalem's wall. Um, it's this strange paradox that whilst on earth we strive to bring about all good things here, ultimately that is because doing so enables us to enter all things in the hereafter. So that's one thing I think Beatrice is doing. But then the shocking bit comes in a way because she points out that the reason why Henry fails in earthly terms is because of the Pope, Pope Clement V, whose machinations undermined Henry's attempts. So much as Henry's attempts were the good thing that enables him to rise through the heavens, so the implication is that Pope's bad things are the things that will thwart that possibility. And the shocking bit comes when Beatrice's last words here in Canto 30 of the Paradise, so close to the end, are the condemnation of a Pope. Clement V, she says, will join Boniface VIII and the other Popes who Dante had seen inverted, stuffed into holes into the earth of the Inferno, with the flames that should have been their light and spirit instead torturing them, not on their heads,
but dancing on their feet. The condemnation of the church, the failures of Christianity, do not let up. And there's something very striking that they're Beatrice's last words. The invective does not die. And yet you just wonder, why is Beatrice uttering these words here in the high heavens, in the Imperium, in paradise? Why are they her last words? It's confused the commentators. Some put it down to Dante's personal animus against the papacy. Well, I don't think that's right because Dante has worked through that. Um, he sees things as they are. He doesn't hold back from the judgment. But the judgment now serves the purpose of enabling all things to be brought to God, back to God. Remember that at the beginning of Canto 29, we'd had these incredible images of how everything, like the perfect circle, will be brought back to the divine creation because the fall was just a digression. Um, it, in a way, only enabled a deeper truth of the creation to be shown forth, which was the incarnation. And so my sense is here that Beatrice's return to even that which is going most disastrously wrong is saying that even that is not out of God's reach. It's remembered here in heaven, painfully to see it as it is, to judge it, but in order that even it can be redeemed, but with the twist that the popes are not redeemed because they're popes, not because they're high church officials, not even, I think, because they claim to be Christian, but because of a divine grace which exceeds all these things. Remember, the canto had begun with the collapse of space and time, with the collapse of what is so familiar here on earth, and also with Dante turning from Beatrice even, the person whose love and light had guided him so far, had transformed him so profoundly, he had to give up even that. And I think that is a reflection of the Christianity beyond Christianity, which this vision has both given Dante, but also must be part of the vision because he's now seeing God directly. The living light envelops him, fills him, He's drunk of it, and before him is the celestial rose, full to infinity of souls and angels. But there's even more still to be revealed and to explore.